I forgot that we didn't have scripture reading this morning. <laughs> because we're, we don't have a particular scripture we're unpacking today. So let's pray. So Lord, thank you for uh, what's been just, I think, a really good season for us. Uh, just diving deep into the letter of Paul to the Galatians and understanding further and in a deeper way grace, the gospel, what it is, what it isn't, and learning how to live by the Spirit, walk in the Spirit. And so, Lord, as we kind of reflect upon the, the bigger kind of lessons that we learned this morning, I pray that they would become a part of the very fiber of our being. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so uh, Steve did a great job of kind of giving you a heads up on what's coming next week and all through the month, and I'm very, very excited about it. In fact, next week we'll kick off with um, a study on the star prophecy. Now that doesn't get a lot of attention, but it's hugely important. And uh, there is a, a, a meaning to that star you have on top of your tree. And next week you're gonna go, wow. I am so glad I have a star on top of my tree because now I'm connecting it with scripture and why we do it. So we'll kick it off that and cookies. Y'all bring cookies. We have one person who makes the perfect cookie. And so we'll all eat, eat their cookie first and then we'll go around. So it's been a great journey. We began, I was looking uh, through my notes, and we began on May 1st this year, Galatians. We've been in it for seven months. Now, of course, we had our emphasis month, but six months, really, half a year of being plunged into this glorious book. And so this morning, we're just going to try and grab central ideas and hopefully kind of knit it together in a cohesive overview of the book that'll kind of remind us of where we've been. So probably four, maybe five things I'll bring to your attention this morning from Galatians. Number one, the gospel is definite. <laughs> the gospel is definite. And I, and I search for a word, you know, I, I spend a lot of time in the thesaurus, you know, like words are powerful in choosing the proper word. And, and I spend a little time on this one. But the dictionary defines the word definite as Clearly defined or determined, not vague or general, fixed, precise, and exact. So the, the gospel has precision to it. There's boundaries in it. If you change any of the components of it, even the order of the components, it becomes a different gospel. And so this is what Paul was saying uh, in chapter 1, verse 6, you're turning to a different gospel, verse 7. There are some who want to distort the gospel, verse 8. If someone preaches to you a different gospel, verse 9. If someone preaches to you a different gospel. Galatians is about the gospel and a controversy that rose up around the gospel. And 
the gospel is and what the gospel is not. And so what's fascinating to me is that this letter is not written to non-Christians or unbelievers. It's written to Christians. Galatians is a book about the gospel that expounds the gospel. It articulates the gospel for Christians. Maybe like me when I was young in the Lord, you think, well, the gospel, that's what we give to people who don't have Jesus so that they can come to Christ and become a Christian. And, and, and then we move on. That's the milk. And then we move on to the meat. Well, I've got news for you. The gospel, Galatians tells us, is not only the milk, it's the meat, it's the appetizer, it's the dessert, it's the little peanuts they give you down at Five Guys. It's all of it. It's all about the gospel. The gospel is everything. It's all-encompassing. It's how we begin in the faith. It's how we continue. Colossians 2.6, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. How did you receive him? Well, it was by faith. Galatians 3.3 said, having begun by the Spirit, are you now going to be perfected by the flesh? You see, the, the Galatian Christians, they started well. I mean, they got off to a great start. Uh, Galatians 5.7, you were running well. I mean, you guys shot out of the gate, man. I came and I preached Jesus, the real gospel of grace, and you embraced Christ, and you began going and learning and serving, and you got off to an incredible start. But along came a group of Messianic Jews. They claimed Jesus as their Messiah, but they had their own spin on the gospel. They insisted that in order to be accepted by God, you had to not only believe in Jesus, but you had to submit to the Old Testament ceremonial rituals and laws, which for Gentiles meant circumcision, right? So if you're one of those Messianic Jewish uh, Christians and you're evangelizing, well, you've got to have a sharp knife with you if you're preaching to Gentiles. Their gospel was believe in Jesus, obey the law of Moses, and then perhaps you'll be justified by God, accepted by God. Paul taught, believe in Jesus, which justifies you in God's sight, and then good works will flow from your relationship with God. So which is it? Belief and works, which leads to justification, or belief Justification, which leads to works. Do works come before or after justification in the salvation chain? It might not seem like that big of a deal to you. Um, you know, it's just one word in, in the chain, right? Uh, but in Paul's mind, it is the biggest deal there is. Those Messianic Jews changed the order of the gospel and this, in fact, is the greatest controversy, I would argue, in the history of planet Earth. 
Now you're going, okay, that's, I know hyperbole when I, when I hear it. Not hyperbolic. I'm being very literal. Man, by nature, believes works must come before salvation, before justification. Do your best. Be a good person. Every other religion in the world, other than biblical Christianity, says do this. Follow these rules. Do your best. And your works, your efforts will justify you. They will gain you acceptance with God, with the higher power, whatever you believe him to be. They will bring you ultimate reward. This is the greatest controversy that there has ever been. The gospel is definite, and it places works after acceptance by God, after justification. Order matters. You take that word works and you put it before justification, it's not the gospel anymore. Well, secondly, number two, therefore, the gospel is controversial. It's controversial. Chapter 1, verse 6, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you into the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Now, you remember that passage, right? That's like a Paul, like, coming out of the gates, blaze, guns a-blazing. Like, whoa, he is serious. Paul leans right into the controversy. He doesn't pull his punches. He doesn't dance around the issue. He says, you guys are troubled and upset and agitated by those people who are distorting the gospel. Those certain people distort, it literally means to pervert or to turn around. And so Paul boldly sets himself against that teaching and those who are promoting it. The gospel is the very heart of Christianity. Listen, you, you can lose a finger and live. You can lose a, a leg, a limb and live. If you lose your heart, you're done. If the church loses the gospel, it loses its heart, and it, there's nothing left at that point. Tamper with the gospel even a little bit, and it's not the gospel anymore. Well, number three, controversy then demands clarity. Okay, so if you have people saying this about the gospel and these people saying this about the gospel, there has to be an addressing of the, there has to be clarity brought to the situation for the sake of God's people. Chapter 2, verse 11. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came... He drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, which Cephas is Peter, right? I said to Peter before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? 
So Paul, you know, again, Peter, he's, Cephas is Peter. So when Peter got to Antioch, he didn't have any problem being with the Gentiles, eating bacon cheeseburgers with the Gentiles, doing everything the Gentiles did. Not a problem at all. So he had been through all the lessons that God had taught him. The sheet with all the animals in it, kill and eat. Don't call unclean what I'm declaring to be clean, Peter. You know, and all of that. So, so he didn't have a problem being at the church potluck when there was bacon and all the rest. Not a problem. Until, until those certain men showed up from the Jerusalem church. These Messianic Jews, and they're from the Jerusalem church was the mother church, right? This is where it all began. And James was the pastor. James, Jesus' little brother, was the pastor. He was a highly esteemed apostle by everyone, obviously. Now, James did not endorse what these people were saying. There's no record of James endorsing that. In fact, we have him refuting that in Acts 15. But a bunch of Jerusalem church leaders show up in Antioch and, and they still keep the law of Moses and they believe Gentiles should as well. So these Messianic Jews, they're having their own meetings, their own worship services and in Antioch and pretty soon Peter is hanging out more and more with the Jewish guys, the Jerusalem guys and less and less with the bacon cheeseburger eating people, the Gentile church. And the Jewish Christians who were part of the church also, along with Peter, pulled away from the church and went to the Messianic Jew group. And even Barnabas went. Barnabas, the encourager. who Everybody loved that guy, you know? Because he just championed people. And in Paul's mind, this wasn't your typical church split. This was an affront to the gospel. What Peter and Barnabas and the other Jewish Christians from Antioch were, were saying to their Gentile brothers and sisters through their actions was, your faith in Jesus is not enough. Your faith is deficient. You are less than us. You are unacceptable to God. And that made Paul mad. <laughs> Rightly so. Imagine being a Gentile in the Antioch church and, and how excited that you would be to hear the, you know, whoever's given the announcements, you know, at your church. And the apostle Peter is going to be here next week, you know. And like, whoa, Peter. Like, I love, I've heard the stories of him walking on water and healing the lame guy, you know, at the gate. And, and the angel setting him free, you know, from prison. And wow, he's going to be at our church. It's going to be amazing. And everybody just super excited. And Peter comes and it's awesome. And the whole bacon cheeseburger thing is happening. And well, these Messianic Jews show up some days later. Peter connects with them, as of course you would expect him to do. And pretty soon, Peter is spending more and more time with them and their worship services. 
And then there's people from your church now. The Jews from your church are also going to the other meeting across town where Peter is. And now Barnabas, the guy you love so much, everybody loves Barnabas. Now he's over with the other group. And here you are in, in your church now, and half the church is gone. Paul had finally had enough. And he marched over to the other church where Peter and Barnabas and all the Messianic Jews, big kahunas were gathered. And in front of all of them, he said, Peter... You need to hear me, and you need to hear me good. You are a Jew, and yet when you got here, you didn't have any problem living with the Gentiles and like the Gentiles. Because there is no problem with living like the Gentiles. So why are you now forcing Gentiles to follow Jewish laws and customs? And there was Peter standing in front of all the Jerusalem Messianic Jews and all of the, you know, Barnabas and all the rest. And Paul was calling him out on his hypocrisy. Listen, every, every good and faithful pastor and church leader knows that a big part of their calling is contending for the faith and clarifying controversial issues. Issues that, that there needs to be understanding imparted to the people because it's for their benefit, for their, their grounding and their growth. They've got to they've receive sound doctrine. And so that means clarifying and contending. And, and when, when you contend for the faith once delivered, like it says in Jude 3, listen, you will be accused of being arrogant and divisive and even hateful. Because by, at least by implication, you're saying that, you know, well, that group's wrong. And that so-called church down the road is not preaching the truth. And they'll call you a hater. But in reality, clarifying the gospel is the most loving thing we can do. Only this true gospel saves, the biblical gospel. There is not another one. And so the gospel is offensive because it excludes every other religion and every other system. I mean, that's it. The offense of the cross is that there's no other way. And so everybody gets offended at that. You're saying I'm wrong. Well, I'm saying there's only one way. <laughs> Draw your own conclusion. Suppose you're standing on the side of the riverbank and there's a, some, some people floating the river and they're coming and you know, and apparently they don't because they, they seem oblivious to it, that just around the bend there's a giant waterfall, like a 200-foot waterfall. And, uh, and so you're concerned about them. And so you yell, hey, you guys, you're, you're going the wrong way here. You got to get out of the river. And they look at you, scowls on their faces and go, hey, buddy, how dare you criticize the way that we've chosen to go, mind your business, jerk. And you persist, please get out of the river. The way that you've chosen will lead to death. 
and they say, leave us alone, you narrow-minded bigot. Our way is fine. Listen, you, you weren't unloving or critical of the rafters. <laughs> You're criticizing the way they've chosen because you love them, because you don't want them to die. You acted in love to warn them, to save them. You'll be accused, Christian, of being hateful. You will. Not because you are, but because you preach a very definite gospel, a gospel that, by implication, exposes every other way as false. And so we need to take that criticism graciously and pray for our enemies. Jesus promised we'd be blessed when we're criticized like that. Matthew 5, 11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. They'll call you a hater. It's not true. Jesus says when they do, you're gonna get a blessing from me. I got you. So, we're not interested, folks, in the, in the approval of people. <laughs> you know, if you can, you know, let the gospel get so into you to the degree that you don't care what people think about you, it's, it's like a superpower. It is so freeing that you are free to speak the truth in love and you're not worried about what somebody might say to you because you have the smile of God and that's all you're really concerned about. Well, number four. Number four, transformation, and we had to get there, right? Galatians, you know, man, saved by grace, you know, apart from works thing. Obviously, that's going to lead to wild, crazy Christians getting drunk all the time and doing crazy stuff and living just sinful lives. So where's the, the, the you know, the power for holiness or the fuel for holy living going to come from? And Paul gets into that in chapter three. So transformation happens by faith. Verse 3, we read the first, this uh, verse 3 already, but we'll read it again. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. You know, saved people have typically have a pretty good sense of God's grace and salvation, even pretty early on. You know, we're saved by grace through faith. It's not of works. It's the gift of God. I didn't deserve it. You know, all that kind of stuff. All, all we did was believe. All we did was lift our eyes to Jesus. You know, like the snake-bitten Israelites lifted their eyes to the, to the bronze serpent on the pole. And it saved them. That's, that's all we did. We lifted our eyes to Jesus. In verse 6, Paul quotes Genesis 15, 6, where it says, Abraham believed God. And it was counted to him as righteousness. So, so it does not say, Genesis 15, 6, that Abraham believed in God. But he believed God. The, the difference 
the, the, the distance between believing in God and believing God is the distance between heaven and hell. You can say you believe in God. <laughs> that's one thing. But believing God, that's what saves you. It's the difference between a joyful, abundant Christian life and a miserable life wandering in the the spiritual wilderness. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Counting is counted as a, a, an accounting term and uh, the King James puts it as reckon. Um, but modern translations don't use reckon because it makes you sound like you're from Texas. So that's why they avoid that. But Abraham believed God and it was counted to him. So the theological word, more, I think, theological word is imputed, imputed. So Abraham believed God and God imputed righteousness to Abraham. God counted Abraham as righteous at that point. Now, if God counts something as something, that something is the thing that God counts it as <laughs> because God's God. So there's no difference between what God says, thinks, and what reality is. So God counted Abraham as righteous, and this was before there was a Moses. This is before there was a law that came down from Mount Sinai. This was before there was a bunch of rules and regulations, before there was circumcision, before there was any of that. Abraham believed and God says, you're righteous, you're saved, we would say, New Testament lingo. Well, he was saved by faith, by grace through faith, not of works. Imagine your wealthy uncle died, he's a, whatever, quibillionaire, and you were contacted by his lawyer who informed you that he left you 100 million. Uh, and so he asked you for your account information so that the money could be deposited in your account. Minutes later, you get a call from the bank saying, sir, you've just received a deposit of $100 million. It's in your account. It's yours. It's available. Those riches were imputed to you. They were given. They are in your account, and though you may not have spent a dime of it, you are now wildly wealthy. It's yours. In the same way, by believing God, Abraham was made spiritually wealthy. He was considered by God to be flush with righteousness. The same is true for every person that comes to Jesus and receives him as Lord and Savior. At that moment, you become utterly righteous in the sight of God. Jesus' righteousness is deposited to your account. You are perfect and beautiful to him in that moment and going forward. So the grand question then becomes, how can this righteousness, this perfection uh, that's been imputed to me by, by God be imparted into my life, into reality, into my day after day, my moments of my life? How can I live this thing? Well, that's what sanctification is about. And if you ask most Christians, this is 
where they will say that sanctification, you know, becoming more like Jesus practically is mainly by self-effort. It's by committing more fully. It's by, you know, trying harder. And if you just try hard enough, you'll change. So it's self-effort and willpower. So you're struggling with anger and you find yourself blowing up at times and you can't control it. And, and because you're not trying hard enough to overcome it. If you just tried harder, you'd get the victory. Your porn addiction persists because you haven't applied enough willpower. Your overspending continues because you haven't clenched your teeth hard enough and said over and over again, I won't go on Amazon, I won't go on Amazon, I won't go on Amazon. <laughs> Black Friday sale, Black Friday sale. Paul says, nope. Transformation, sanctification, becoming like Jesus does not work like that. If you, if you grab onto the law to perfect you, the law will do what it always does, which is condemn you and kill you, basically. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? How are we changed? How do we overcome sin? How do we come, overcome persistent flaws in our life the same way that we began the Christian life? Just as you received Christ, so continue in him. Continue. So by faith, we draw upon those riches that are already ours. They're in our account. And we begin to draw upon them. So, for instance, Romans 6.11, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So, so consider, reckon, do the math. You're free from sin and alive to God. That's the reality of who you are. You're wildly wealthy spiritually. Start making withdrawals. We don't so much overcome our sins as we do lose interest in them. That's the way it works over time. All right, number five, this last one. Transformation will be contested. Galatians 5, verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evidence. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So, so Paul points out that there are competing desires inside of every true Christian. 
And there is this, this war that happens inside of every true follower of Jesus, a civil war inside of every born-again Christian. It's a war of desire. It can be confusing and, and certainly is at times frustrating and discouraging. But Paul is telling us that Christian growth happens in the midst of that. That's where Christian growth happens, in the midst of the competing desires. This is normal and it's necessary. You're not weird. You're not defective as a Christian because you've got this stuff going on in you that you know isn't good. Paul is saying that, yes, that's in you. So what's our strategy? To not give in to those desires, the bad ones. Well, 5.16 says, I say, walk by the Spirit you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. So, so note, Paul does not say, walk by the Spirit and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. No, he says, walk by the Spirit and you will not. So Coach Paul's strategy is not just say no. Now saying no, I mean, that, that has a, place, right? But, but this, is, this is not Paul's strategy. He's not advocating that we use the force of will as our primary weapon to overcome the desires of the flesh. He's saying that there is something far deeper, something far more powerful and effective than that. Now, in case you, because this is easy to do, in case you, you think, oh, okay, the desires of the flesh, it doesn't come across in, at least in my estimation, all that great in the English, desires of the flesh. We think sexual, typically. We hear flesh. And, and, and sexual sins are in that list, right? But they're only part of the list. The greater part of the list is other stuff. It's internal stuff. It's being divisive and jealous and, you know, dissension. And you're, you know, you're against this person. and you have, It's that kind of stuff. So, the desires of the flesh, King James comes across lust of the flesh, but in reality, the, the word render desire or lust is the Greek word epithemeo, and it means over-desire, over-desire. It's a desire that consumes you, that dominates you, a desire that bullies you. You obsess over it. So, the word doesn't mean desiring bad things as much as it does over-desiring anything, even good things. Now this is, man, if you get this, this is, this is a truth that can revolutionize your life and your understanding of sanctification. It really can. The average Christian thinks that their biggest issue is their desire for bad things. But God... So full of mercy, he has created a world full of good things. And when used properly and within the parameters that God has given, they are a blessing and they glorify the giver of the gift. Sex is a good gift from God. Alcohol is a good gift from God. Psalm 104.15, wine gladdens the heart and family, good gift from God. 
creativity, ambition, music, sports, on and on and on. All good things. Our problem is not necessarily desire for bad things, but rather over-desiring good things. That's the issue. We desire good things too much. Steve went ahead and surveyed the overeaters on Thanksgiving. <laughs> there was a few honest enough going, yeah, that was me. Over-desiring. When we over-desire something, even a good thing, it leads to bad behaviors. So what's the key to overcoming the desire of the flesh? Well, it's, it's walking in the Spirit. A simple answer. It's walking humbly with our God. It's yielding to Him. Listen, we'll, we'll close here. We, we need to get to the table and but let me, let me just put this one final thought before you and kind of sum up this issue that Paul deals with so powerfully. Legalism, which is what the Messianic Jews were promoting, it appeals to our pride. You can do it. It says you can make it happen. You can be holy enough and righteous enough. If you just try hard enough and commit fully enough, you got it in you to be good enough for God, uh, to accept you and to be pleased with you on your own merits, and, and, and you, you will feel superior to others. And so there's an appeal to legalism. It's a, you're going to feel like I'm on, I'm on the A team because those losers are on the B team. And it's very affirming in that regard. But then it enslaves you because you never know if you've done enough. How do you know that you've done enough? How do you know that God is pleased? Because I don't think you really kept the Sabbath the way you're supposed to. And when things go south in your life, you're thinking, I haven't done enough. God isn't pleased. I need to sacrifice more. I need to try harder. And that is no different than the pagan worship that was prevalent in the first century. That's exactly what it looked like to worship the Baals and the Dianas and the Aphrodites. Worshippers of the pagan gods, they made sacrifice and they tried to earn their God's favor. If they wanted their, their farm or their business to prosper and their children to be blessed or whatever, they would make sacrifices. So if the crops failed or if business dried up or a child died or whatever, they figured the gods must not be pleased. And so we will sacrifice more in order to please our God. And it was slavery. Legalism is slavery. The cross, on the other hand, has no appeal to our pride. None. In fact, the cross says terrible things about you and about me. It says we can't do it. We don't have what it takes. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. And all of our 
good works, so-called, offend God. Now, if that's not offend, if you're not offended by that, do you, I mean, do you understand what what the gospel is saying? You should be offended by that. No matter how hard we try, God will never be satisfied. And you go, well, what kind of God is that? And the God who decided to do for you what you couldn't do for yourself. That's what kind of God he is. Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Legalism affirms you on the front end and enslaves you on the back end. The gospel devastates you and shatters you on the front end, but then brings you into the greatest freedom and blessing eternally. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the Holy Spirit whose guidance over the last seven months has um, unfolded truth to us in a way that has been super helpful. And just in my own life personally, but in conversations that I've had with my church family over the months, um, so we just want to say thank you for that, Lord, and, and we pray that this letter uh, would carry a, just a very warm place in our hearts and that we would come back to it again and again and again and be reminded of the glorious gospel of grace. And Lord, in our struggles, uh, our day-to-day, -day, just trying to live out the gospel take those riches that have been imputed to us and put them into play in our marriages, in our parenting, in our workplace, in our relationships, in the classrooms. Lord, as we do that, that we would learn how to live by the Spirit, knowing that when we do, then we're not going to gratify the desires of the flesh. So it's, it's not so much a try harder, clench our teeth a little more. It's yield to you. It's invite you. Be Lord and Lord of our days is waking up in the morning and say, God, fill me with the Holy Spirit today. Help me to be aware of you and pray for your grace and help and 
When temptation comes, Lord, let me head for the door that you provide. And Lord, if I should fall, if I should fail, help me to be quick to come before the throne of grace where I will find help in the time of trouble. Help me to realize that when I sin, I have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Lord, as we come to the table, Lord, I pray that that our hearts would be impacted freshly this morning by the power of the gospel, that singular greatest act of love that the world has ever known, the cross where love and wrath combined. Your love was demonstrated for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. And you laid on him the iniquity of us all. Meet us there. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you are a believer here this morning, make your way to the communion table. And then Pastor Ron is going to talk to you who maybe have not accepted Christ this morning. I know Pastor Greg, um, what a great summary that we just got to walk through the, this amazing book of Galatians, this book of faith, not of works. And he said one thing that really impacted my heart and and sitting there listening. He said, just as you received Christ, so continue in him. It starts from that moment when we recognize that, God, I have failed and and I'm crippled by my shame of my failures and my sin. And, And God says, but I love you. And I have a way to deal with that for you because you can't do it on your own. And so the way that God dealt with that was through His Son on a cross. He was beaten and He was pierced and He was forsaken. But yet He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. You see, that's God's heart for you. He says, I I want you to know that I have a word for you today. And that word for you today is one word. The proclamation of God through Jesus Christ is forgiven. And so if you have never received the forgiveness that God has, I want to do that with you right now. Before we take communion, I want to do that with you right now. Because it might be the day is the day of salvation for you. And you might need to get up and go to the table. Because this is where we remember 
what God has done for us. So won't you join me as we pray? Lord, I, I don't know who's here today, but they're here listening and they recognize that they need you. They've heard this message today and they've been longing to hear this truth that sets them free. And so today, if you're here with me from your very own heart, you might follow along with me and it says, Dear Jesus, thank you for loving me. Won't you please forgive me and come into my life and give me life, give me new life and that I will follow you because I believe that you died on that cross and you rose from that grave. And because of that, now I have new life in you. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. So yes, believer, we do this in remembrance of what God has done for us. Can I have an amen? Yes, and amen. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, you took the bread and you gave thanks and you broke it. Oh, the picture of your body for what was to come. But you knew, you knew there was no other way. And so, Lord, we take this bread recognizing that it is in you and you alone that our sins have been paid for. There's nothing more for us to do than to receive the gift of eternal life through you, Jesus. And so we give you thanks. Won't you take? Then Jesus took the cup and he told his disciples, this is the new covenant the new binding agreement by God. He says, I have determined it and now it's happening. That God would shed his blood, his life for us so that we could be cleansed of all unrighteousness. Oh, what a gift that is. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for the gift of life, eternal life. Through the cleansing blood of Jesus, we are set free from the weight of our sin. And we live in joyous celebration. Of your love. And so, Lord, may you pour that love in us and through us that we would be the beautiful reflection of that love for others. Thank you, Jesus, for shedding your blood for us that we may be cleansed. In your name we pray. Amen. Won't you take?